just for the weekend and different things. So uh, uh, just quite grateful to see you today and uh, hope you've been having a good time. It turns out I found out last night that we can thank this cool weather to my granddaughter. Because she, I talked to her on the phone last night and she said, Papa, how was it today? And I said, it was really nice and cool. She goes, oh. She says, well, it was Wednesday, I guess, whatever day it was. She says, Nana told Mama that it was hot and that you got sweaty. And I prayed, Jesus, be with the people at that camp. Make it cool and don't let Papa sweat because, Jesus, you know he sweats a lot. <laughs> so here we are. Here we are. Nice weather yesterday, nice weather today. Thank you, little Julie. She's a precious one, that one. She really is. And she's worried about her Papa sweating a lot. So, uh, and I'm grateful for that too. Anything we need to pray about today? All hearts are clear? All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day, and thank you, God, for your precious grace and for your, uh, your ear to the prayers of a little one and a simple faith, the faith of a child, dear Lord, that you call us to. We adults who get so caught up in all the details and all the issues and all the all the stuff going on around us and all the worries and concerns of this world, Lord, and we get so caught up in, in what can be and what can't be, and we know what can be and what can't be, Lord, and you say, come to me as a little child. Trust me with the littlest things and the biggest things, for I'm with you. So, Lord, be with us today as we study your word. I'm grateful for this uh, time that we've had together. And as we have our last two lessons today and tomorrow, I pray God you just uh, be with us very much so and that we will see truly your love in all of your Bible. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All righty. Well, um, today we are going to uh, finish up our look at the Old Testament, sort of. Uh, tomorrow we're going to move into the very first verse of the New Testament which simply says the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, uh, which we will then look back through and see what in the world is Matthew talking about because he's referring very much to the images of God's love coming in the Messiah. And so we will do that tomorrow. Uh, but today we're going to be looking and continuing the prophets in Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And as I did yesterday, I want to talk a little bit more about the background of the prophets, especially Micah, and what is going on in this story uh, that we see in this. Um, Micah is a contemporary of the prophets Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea. If you've read Isaiah and Amos and Hosea, you realize that he is dealing with issues in society that are very common to us today. Uh, there's a lot of issues uh, of injustice, a lot of issues of, of uh, really superficial faith, uh, a religion that is basically just motion, uh, a lot of stuff going on uh, that is pretty much a civil religion, and by civil religion meaning, meaning a nationalistic religion, that our faith is tie was tied very closely to their king, 
in many ways. Uh, and God is not happy with that. God is God. God is to be their king. God is to be their main focus in everything they do. God is more than just a sugar daddy that you run to every time you need something. God is someone who wants to live with us every moment of every day and wants to be part of our lives and wants to be there for us in the midst of it all. And so Amos is dealing with this specifically uh, and Micah is a, is a little less brash than Amos. Amos makes it very clear. You, you're, he calls the, the Israelite women, uh, Amos does, cows of Bashan, uh, which is not a good thing to call a woman in the first place, for anybody for that matter. Cows of Bashan, as you lounge on your ivory couches, as your servants feed you your grapes, as you holler at your husband, bring you more wine, you are spoiled rotten and lost, and lost. Amos is pretty brash. Micah is a little more uh, even-keeled, but yet he gets right to the issues as he goes along. Now, Micah is also known for a number of things uh, that we'll talk about today, but uh, first off, he's from Moresheth, which is a little, little tiny village uh, Moresheth Gath, it's called today, a small town in southwest Judah. It's down near what is modern-day Gaza Strip. If you've seen maps of, of Israel today, the Gaza Strip is down very close to, that's the ancient, where the Gaza Strip is, is actually where ancient, the ancient Philistines lived. And so he lived very close to where the Philistines' homes were. Prophesied during the reigns of kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah, around 737 to 696 B.C. And so again, in 720, a little history lesson, and, and not that you're interested in history, about 722, 721 B.C. is when the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. Okay? Because of their unfaithfulness, God sent Amos to the northern kingdom, Micah is speaking to the southern kingdom, but they're both dealing with the same issues because they both nations had the same issues. But the northern kingdom especially was totally wrapped up in their wealth, totally wrapped up in their, their superiority, totally wrapped up in their military might, totally wrapped up in their place in society. They, were, they controlled the main trade routes. Uh, that came from the, the Western Arabian Desert up to the port of Tyre. They could ship all of their spices and things to Europe. Then also the one that ran from Egypt up to Babylon, which, which uh, carried all the goods back and forth between those two areas. And they both crossed at a town called Megiddo, which is in the northern kingdom. The, the, word, the name Megiddo... Actually, the city of Megiddo has been conquered so many times, it's now a giant hill because they'd build one town on top of the other. After it's destroyed, they would just level it and build on top of it. And so it becomes known as Mount Megiddo, which is Har Megiddo, which is where we get the name Armageddon, which is where the final battle is going to take place. Okay? That is in the northern kingdom of Israel. And Megiddo controlled those two major trade routes. So Megiddo was, uh, Israel was very wealthy because they had all this trade going through them. And so 
uh, Amos was dealing with them. And so Amos, knowing that their time was shorter than Judah's, was very brash. Micah is speaking to Judah about 90 years or so before the Babylonians come onto the scene. Okay? So he's warning them in advance of what's coming their way. Judah does not get, does not get captured, if you will. Uh, the Babylonians begin to put their pressure onto uh, Judah around 606, and then 596, uh, Judah's final rebellion against the Babylonians ends up with Jerusalem being destroyed, the temple being destroyed, and Judah going into exile also. Uh, so that's the history lesson, if you will. So that puts this right in that middle. He begins his ministry right before the Assyrian conquest of the north, but then continues on afterwards, okay? Speaking to Judah in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in Judah. And his early prophecies predicted the destruction of both Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria was the capital of Israel in the north, Jerusalem in the south. He prophesied both destructions. Of course, the Israelites in, in, in uh, the Judahites were not too upset about Samaria's destruction. They didn't like the northern folks too much. Uh, but when he talked about Jerusalem, they weren't too happy about that uh, because that was their home. And so he is dealing with these issues. Israel and Judah had deserted true faith in Yahweh. Historical background, under Jeroboam II, and uh, the time period there in Israel and Uzziah in Judah, a long period, overlapping quite a bit, uh, both of whom had long reigns at the same time. The two kingdoms cooperated to achieve a period of prosperity, of tranquility, and empower, imperial power unequaled since Solomon's reign. This period of time is known as the Golden Age, if you will, uh, of the divided kingdom. That this was the period of the greatest wealth, of the greatest time of peace, the greatest power of these two nations in the world in a long time. So about 50 years worth of this tranquility, of peace, of prosperity, okay? So Judah had grown complacent and comfortable, become very sure of themselves in their religious faith, that we're favored by God, we are chosen by God as God's chosen people, of course, but we're chosen and favored by God simply because look at what he has done, look at our nation, look how rich and wealthy we are, look how peaceful we are, look how strong we are, we, God has surely shown favor on us, therefore we must be something special must be something special and so they became very complacent again Amos recalls the wealth of the period and the abuse because of it and Judah was swayed by a false doctrine also taught by false prophets and government priests and here is the the the, the theology that was twisted through the years in Deuteronomy we have in Deuteronomy 28 that the statement says, if you're obedient, then God says, I will bless you. I will bless you in your homes, in your villages, in your fields, in your childbearing. And 14 verses of blessing if you're obedient. But if you're disobedient, and he goes back and says, I will curse you in your homes, in your villages, in your fields, in your childbearing. 
I will curse you. And he actually has 64 verses of curses in Deuteronomy 28. Now, where the problem is, was that over time, they begin to misunderstand what blessing and curse means. God's ultimate blessing God offers us and all people is his presence. That is the ultimate blessing God offers. His presence with us. God with us is the blessing. Therefore, a curse, an adverse, would be the absence of presence. Now, God is always present, but God also has given us free will choice. And so if we choose not to want to be in touch with God, we choose not to be in close relationship with God, if we choose not to want God to be part of our daily lives, then God allows us to do that. And that's a curse. Because when we do things on our own, does it usually work out well? Usually not. And so the prophets are coming and saying, Turn back to God. Turn back to God. Well, they said, well, look, we're at church every Saturday. We bring our sacrifices every Saturday. We do everything we're supposed to do. What are you talking about? And Jesus says, or God says to them in in Isaiah, but your hearts are far from me. Because you really don't trust me. You just expect me to protect you. And so here's the problem. Over the time... Of course, we think of blessing in our own ways. When we are honest about it, the first thing we think about a blessing is stuff. How many times have I said, my, the Lord has blessed so-and-so with a, a new job. My, so-and-so, has, God has blessed so-and-so with a new car. God has blessed so-and-so with a new house. God has blessed somebody, so-and-so with a, with a healing or with, a, with, a, with, a, with, with good health or, or whatever it is. We think of blessing as stuff. And over time then if you have stuff, then obviously you must be obedient. That's the twist. Obedience is God with us, and God does bless us with stuff. Okay? But also there are people who are not believers who have more stuff. Does that mean God blesses them more because they're disobedient? I don't think so. But the idea was, if I am have stuff, then I must be blessed. Therefore, I must be obedient. I must be good. And therefore, if you don't have stuff, or you are, if you do have trouble, if you do have a handicap, if you are having struggles with a job or whatever, if, then you must have done something wrong. How many times have you heard that? What have I done wrong? that I lost my job. God, forgive me, whatever I've done wrong for this to happen to me. We're missing the point. We're missing the point. God's blessing does not mean life is going to be perfect. God's blessing is, I will be with you even in the imperfections. Okay? In this world, there are many troubles. If I don't remember, that's what Jesus said. But I'll be with you through them all. That's blessing. That's blessing. But they missed it. And so all of a sudden, here come the prophets, and they're saying, turn back to God. Well, look at all of our stuff. Look how powerful we are. 
Look how much favor God has shown upon us. We must be good. Get out of here. Get out of here. And Jeremiah wouldn't give up, and so they throw him in a pit and mud up to his neck. They put him in stocks. They, they treat him like garbage. Tradition says Isaiah was, was put into a hollow log and sawed in half, which is mentioned in, alluded to in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, and they were sawed in half. Sworn in two, sawn in two for doing what is right. This is the issue that was there. The trouble is, I feel like in our own society, we do the same thing. It was really strong in Jesus' day, this feeling of, of blessings and curses, this misunderstanding, this twisted theology. What did the disciples say as Jesus and his disciples are walking by and they find a man born blind sitting there? And they walk by, and what did the disciples say? Anybody remember? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's the twisted understanding. And Jesus said, neither. Neither. Exactly. That stuff happens. But I am here. In the midst of it, I'm here. So this twisted theology is what these, these uh, prophets are trying to deal with. Israel and Judah's reaction of all, to all of the prophets' messages was based on this twisted theology. If we are prosperous, then God has blessed us, thus we are good. So don't tell me we are not. How many preachers have heard that? I had a, 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 several folks in a church that had a lot of issues within it as far as gossiping and all kinds of stuff going on. And so when I preached, I preached about the sins within the church. I said, preacher, talk about sin. I said, I am. No, that's sin out there. Talk about homosexuality. Talk about drug abuse. Talk about prostitution. Talk about pornography. I said, it's in here too. But the fact is, there aren't too many people in here that are doing those things. So if I'm going to preach about that, you bring them on in. Invite those sinners in the church, I'll preach about that. But if they're not here, I'm going to preach about them so that you can feel better about yourself. I want to preach about what's important to God and amongst his people. And if we're tearing each other apart and we're talking about each other behind, my, behind the back and we're judging each other and doing the whole, well, there she is. I can't believe she came today. Do you know what she did yesterday? Are you sure? Well, that's what I heard. From who? Somebody who heard it. From who? From somebody who heard it can't believe it. Do you know what she did? That's got to stop. That's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. But nobody wants to hear that. Why? Because we come to church every Sunday. I put $5 in the plate every week.
I even send, a, even send birthday cards to missionaries. I'm good. I'm good. Ah, but Jesus says, but your heart's far from me. Your heart's far from me. For Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Micah, another twisted theology affected Israel, or Judah's ears. They lived in Jerusalem. Many of them, the capital was Jerusalem. And for them, Jerusalem, if God lives in Jerusalem, in the temple, God will never let Jerusalem fall. Who would, if you're God, how could you let your own house be destroyed? It's not going to happen. It can't happen. It's impossible to happen. God lives here. God will never let this place be destroyed. If we are part of his people and we has, his own capital, his own home is amongst us, God's never going to let us be destroyed. You're crazy. You're crazy. And the prophets say, the temple has become something maybe more than it's supposed to be. We have here an early form of prosperity gospel. Get rich and everybody think you're blessed. And if you truly are blessed, you will get rich. If you truly are blessed, you'll never get sick. If you truly are blessed, God will heal you of anything or you can heal anybody else if you're truly blessed. And an overconfidence in their chosenness. In Jerusalem, Solomon's splendid, gold-laden, magnificent, beautiful temple became Judas' proof of God's favor and privilege. It was like, okay, where do you go to church? Well, I'm the pastor of such and such. Oh, that little place? In Louisville, Kentucky, where I pastored for years when I was getting my PhD, there's a church down there, Southeast Christian. I don't know if you ever heard of Southeast Christian. Christian. 15,000 people. Huge edifice, beautiful bronze roof on this thing. And to go to Southeast Christian is a symbol of pride of many people. Oh, you're the pastor of that little Nazarene church. I attend Southeast Christian. That's what's happening right here. Our God's temple is better than your God's temple. And their pride was overweening as the way the prophets put it. Going to worship became a social event, a ritual. There was no need for repentance or modesty. We are the chosen people of God. Let's just be honest about it. Let's just get it out there. We are God's chosen people. You see, even Israel, the northern kingdom, who were a bunch of apostates who left the kingdom, they started their own thing out there. They're destroyed, but God protected us. We're good. We're great. We're wonderful. We're better than everybody else. And if they were protected, or if they were, if they were, if they were, if they were who they were, then God was required to take care of them. Required to take care of them. That's a dangerous place to be. So we turn to Micah chapter six, verses one through eight. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you, you endearing, uh, enduring fountains of, foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend, contend 
with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember that what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams and with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love mercy, I love kindness and mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah starts with a case, God's case. It's a picture of a, a, a court of law where the judge has come in and has called the court to order and says, bring your case, bring your case before me. Because Israel has been complaining, complaining about what the prophet was saying, complaining about all the things that are going on, complaining about the good old days are fading away, that the old way of life is being lost every moment of the day. The, 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 prophetic, or the, the, the profitable days of King Uzziah were over, 15 years have passed, the, the Syrians have come and, and have conquered the north, have taxed the, the southern kingdom, and so they're not as prosperous, they're not as wealthy, they don't have all the trade they used to have, and so things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and they're complaining, 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 complaining. God, why don't you fix this? Bring us back to our greatness. Help us to be everything that we, want, that we were supposed to be. Help us to be what I was used to being. Help return us back to where we were. And, and, and God says, tell me what I have done to where are you? What have I done to cause you to question me? Tell me where you get this arrogance to think that you can complain about what I've done or I'm not doing or what I'm giving my prophets to say. Tell me who you think you are. Have you not remembered? Can you not remember what I did for you? How I brought you out of Egypt? How I brought you? I gave you Moses and I gave you, the, I, 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 I gave you all, this, all, the, all these people who led you. I brought you into this land. I, I, I was with you. But in the midst of it, on your way to the, to the land, Balak, the king of Moab, wants to destroy you. And he hires Balaam, the, the prophet, to curse you. And I would not allow him to do that. Every time he opened his mouth, a blessing would come out. Remember what happened, what I have done with you, what I have been with you, how I have been through you with you all the way through the wilderness? Are you complaining about that? How I brought you into this land in the first place? How I've given you this land for all these hundreds of years? And all you've done is complain just like you did and wander away just like you did in the wilderness? And how you love going back to the wilderness and now living in a wilderness of faith, as we talked about the other day. Your, your faith is so dry that you love the wilderness this much? 
And the response, the response they bring is amazing. So we have this, this witnesses are called, the mountains and the hills and the strong foundations of the earth are the witnesses that are called. Uh, they've experienced it all. They've been there through the whole thing. They've seen it all. They've heard it all. So they are the witnesses of everything. And the court comes to order. So again, he says, what have I done to you? Literally nothing but good. Metaphorically, have I spoiled you so that you do not honor me anymore? So literally, Jesus, God is saying, literally, I've done nothing but good. But then literally, is he saying, have I just spoiled you? Rotten? By doing all these good things to you? And now here you are? Here you are? It mentions Egypt and Balak and Balaam. God made good, Israel made bad. That's all there is to it. God could never be persuaded to curse Israel. But they brought curses on themselves through their own idolatry and disobedience. Yes, idolatry of other gods, yes, they did. But over and over, the prophets, especially in the 8th century here and, and, and later on, they rarely mention idolatry as in figurines. They talk about the idolatry of self, their pride, their stuff, their arrogance, the worship of self. The worship of themselves as God's chosen people. The worships of themselves as God's only people in the world that he has chosen. They he approaches and actually attacks in many ways through the prophets their overweening pride in their accomplishments and in their trust in their position in the world. So Judah was in financial decline, there were threats from Assyria was growing, the world was not safe anymore, and God responds to Judah's questioning of God. God showed Israel that if they felt cursed in any way, it was entirely their own responsibility. God never leaves us, but we can slowly by slowly by slowly wander from God. And that fire that burns in our soul becomes an ember. And the fire in our soul becomes just a smoky vapor. What God is saying in these words is exactly what he's been saying throughout the scripture. If bad things happen to you because of your own actions, because you didn't trust me, because you didn't really ask me, because you really didn't want me to be involved, you didn't even think about me when you did this, then you have brought this curse on yourself. I'm not punishing you. We blame God for a lot of stuff, don't we? The wind blows, tree falls on our house, it's called an act of God. Yeah? Even though that limb's been dead for three years and should have been cut down a long time ago, it's God's fault. Yeah? It's God's fault. 
I lose my job. Why did God do this to me? Or why did God let this happen? Well, were you really doing your job? Were you really working hard? Were you really, you know? Or even if you were working hard, does God control your boss and all that kind of stuff? Is it God's fault when business goes bad? Is it God's fault when the economy drops? Is it God's fault when stuff happens in life? Almost everything that happens is through human decision. Yes? Almost everything. Now, hurricanes and stuff like that, we have no control over. But then again, well, I won't get into the ecology stuff. That makes people angry. Anyway. So Judah's false and superficial faith, plus abuse of the poor and the different things that we see in the prophets, had broken covenant. Love God with all that you are and love your neighbor yourself is the essence of the covenant. Both of those commandments that Jesus puts together as one are found in the Torah. Primarily, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might is found in the Shema. We talked about that a few days ago in Deuteronomy chapter 6. That is the essence of covenant. We're no longer loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and soul. Then we are breaking covenant. Simple as that. If God has become, well, I don't have time today to pray. I don't have time today to read my Bible. I don't have time today to, 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 to see God's answer on this. I got to act now. I got I to gotta move. You know, I've heard, I've heard so many times, even from board members in my church, that purchased when I pastored. I'd say, you know, what I feel like the Lord would want us to do. Pastor, you're, ta- you're talking about, you know, you're talking about faith stuff, and that's not the real world. We're living in the real world. Holy cow. How'd you get elected to the board? But yet, sometimes we all think that way once in a while. Well, that's all well and good. That's a, that's a perfect world, and that perfect world doesn't exist anymore. This is the real world now. But our prayer should be, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That we should be agents of kingdom on earth. Yes? So this is the issue that we're facing here in this story. So their answer is, well, okay, he's mad at us. Okay, God's been mad at us before. He's yelling at us. Here we go. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and Hosea put it this way. He said, okay, things are good. Things are not good. Things are not, you know, and and so God's probably mad at us. So come, you know, in in chapter 6 of Hosea, come, let us come to God and repent. God's come to God and turn back. He's forgiven us in the past a thousand times. He'll do it again. Let's, God, forgive us. Oh, God, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us. And in verse 3, God says, oh, Jacob, oh, Ephraim, talking about Judah and Israel, what will I do with you? For your love is like the morning dew. 
beautiful morning like today, the dew comes out on the grass, everything's beautiful, everything, it's, oh, it's a beautiful morning, the sun comes up, the dew evaporates away, evaporates away. That's exactly what's happening here. So all we have to do is be obedient, and God must bless us. Therefore, if, this case, if his case is true, which we kind of doubt, but if his case is true, what do I need to do then? Do I need to bring a boatload of oil, a whole bunch of rams to, to sacrifice? Does that will make God happy? Will that be enough? If not, do I need to bring my own son like Abraham? Is that, will that make God happy? Is that what God wants? Bring my own son, firstborn? Do I need to do that to make God happy? I can just picture in my mind God just kind of heartbroken. The prophet just heartbroken. Saying, you don't get it. No. No. He has shown us. He has shown us. Again, does this sound familiar? What must I do to be saved? Is a question that was asked of Jesus several times. What must I do to be saved? How do I make things better between me and God? I've been asked that a dozen times in my life, and I tell them, surrender yourself. Well, that's hard. Can I just give something to the church or something? No, he wants you. But I, but I know. I'll give $100 to the building fund. No, even better. I'll give $1,000 to missions. God's a softy on missions. I'll give $1,000. Boy, that'll get me up. That'll, that'll make him happy. Woo! Look at me. Look what I did. If that's not enough or I don't have the money, I know I'll sacrifice my kid. Whatever they would like to do, like today, well, ah, no sports, no friends, no smartphone. I'm going to turn them into a little tiny wannabe me. That'll make God happy. I'll make a, I'll make a preacher out of this boy. That'll make God happy. That'll make God happy. Yeah? Yeah. These are things that we do. I don't feel good about myself in relationship with God, so I'll give money. I'll, I'll, I'll sponsor a, an orphan in Africa. And I don't mean it. I don't want to. I'm not. I don't mean to step on anybody's toes. And again, this is not political. But it concerns me sometimes when I see so many posts of people on mission trips taking selfies with little orphans on their lap, snot nosed, no shoes, hungry, but wouldn't dare want them to live next to them in, in their home. Wouldn't dare. Would despise them moving in next door. Again, not 
trying to step on anybody's toes. I'm, the Lord just kind of gave me a prophetic voice today, not that I'm a prophet. I'm talking to myself as much as anybody. These are issues we have to deal with. We have to deal with. Notice there is no mention of self-sacrifice. Do they all say one thing about giving themselves? Give some money. They got plenty of money. Give their kid, but not themselves. Not a word about well, what I need to surrender myself to God. Not a word mentioned about that. God has shown us through his creation, his seeing, hearing, caring, and delivering in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush and bringing them out of Egypt and bringing them out of the land of bondage of slavery. Shown us through bringing Jesus Christ to bring us out of the bondage of sin. He's shown us etc., and etc., etc. Over and over and over again, God has shown us, God has shown us, God has shown us what is good. We talked about the word good the very first day. What, are, what, what is good? Good is not so-so. We think of good as so-so. We think of good as, well, I've had good pie, but I've had better pie, and boy, I'll tell you, sister so-and-so makes the best pie. We think of good as so-so. God is, does not make so-so. The earth, the, God did not make creation to be so-so. Boy, this is a great average creation. Hallelujah. No. It's complete. It's whole. It's full. It's everything that we need. God has shown us everything that is good, everything that, is, that we need to be happy and content. He has shown us what it is. He has shown us with his own example. That the Lord has a requirement because of this evidence. What is it that he has shown us? What is it? Do justice. It's not complicated. Do justice. God is a just God. He's shown us over and over again. He cares for the brokenhearted, those who are abused. He wants justice to be fair and, and, and equity for those, everybody to have an, an equal chance an opportunity to live a life with him. He wants everybody to be treated equally to be able to have a chance to know the love of God. He wants us, uh, first, well, first and foremost, it is a relational term. Justice is a relational term. Justice is not a court of law. Justice is not a, 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 a conviction or a penalty or a, uh, a, a sentence Justice means that I care about what is right for you and for those who are suffering. And so if someone is, is injured or someone is robbed or someone is murdered, then for that person's sake, I want justice and equity to be made. Which then includes a courtroom, Okay. But it comes from the idea of no one should take advantage of another person. No one. No one. No one should take advantage of another person. No one should feel superior to any other person. We're all created in the image of God. Every single person who's ever been born is created in the image of God. 
no matter what we look like, no matter where we live, no matter where we were born, no matter what conditions we are part of, no matter what language we speak, no matter what color of our skin, we're all created in the image of God. So no one has a right to feel superior. No one. Now, the issue of social justice. Of course, you know, social justice is a hot term, and I mentioned we would talk about this today. But social justice is a hot, hot issue because it's become a political issue. And it's a political agenda and actually a political movement that is used by both sides of the aisle. That's not the social justice the Bible talks about, but it is social justice. You can't throw out the term social justice because it's being abused in political terms. Jesus, or the prophets especially, but Jesus is constantly facing the social injustice of his day. Women had no rights. What does he do? He goes to women. The crippled have no rights. What does he do? He goes to crippled. The woman had five wives or five husbands and was living with another man. She has no rights. She, she's looked down on. She's filth. She has to go in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, to get water because the women of the city won't even come let her come close to the water when they're around there. She's, a, she's an outcast, everything else. What does he do? He goes to where? You remember where Jesus met the woman at the well? Psyker! What time is it? Sorry. Ooh, we're almost too late. I got so much to say. Anyway, but does God does call for justice in society, and that includes equality, people having the same opportunities, whether they believe like we do or not, whether they behave like we think they should or not. If they don't break the laws of the land. Everyone should have equal opportunity. That's justice. Will someone come to love Jesus if someone who loves Jesus tells him, no, you don't have any rights for that because you're that way. Boy, they're going to love Jesus that way, aren't they? We have to be careful. We have to be careful and understand that social justice is not a four-letter word. It's biblical, but it's never supposed to be a political agenda, ever. It's supposed to be a way of life for believers, especially. Love mercy, literally ahav, love, we talked about this early on, first day, ahav, love, chesed, tender loving kindness, tender loving mercy, the ever enduring love forever of God. Love, chesed. Love, embrace, intimately know mercy for yourself and for others. Give people a break. You know, we talk about how God loves a sinner but hates the sin. God despises sin, but he doesn't think about the sin. He thinks about the one who is lost. Humans call them sinners. God calls them lost. 
God calls them lost. And they need to be found. Or they need to find hope, love, forgiveness. They need to know that there's a better way of living. Condemning people will not reach that point. Surrender to God's love requires freely loving to share that merciful, gracious love to others. Mercy and grace flows from the surrendered life that lives in perfect love. Images of holiness. And walk humbly with your God. Charles Spurgeon wrote, I would not advise any of you to try to be humble, but to be humble. Don't try to be humble, he's saying. As to acting humble, when a man forces himself to it, that is poor stuff. When a man talks a great deal about his humility, when is he, when is he very humble to everybody? When he is humble to everybody, he is generally a canting hypocrite. Humility must be in the heart then will come out spontaneously as the outflow of life in every act that a man performs. God calls us to humility. But he doesn't say, okay, I'm going to wake up this morning and be humble. Humility requires us to surrender. Surrender my rights. Surrender my will. Surrender my need for praise. Surrender my need to be known. Surrender my need for position. Surrender my need to be first in the cafeteria line. Or in the church, if you're, if you're in Nazarene church, you have potlucks all the time. First in the potluck line. We had old evangelists used to preach that so, Who's going to be first in the potluck line? Who's sitting in the big chair? Surrender it. Surrender it. That is the essence of holiness. Walking humbly with our God. God, you are God, and I truly am not. And therefore, I am yours, and you're mine. Micah 6.8, I believe, is the best example in the Old Testament that describes holiness. This is what it looks like. Doing justice, loving mercy, but it begins with surrender and humbly walking with the Lord who is just and is merciful. Humility requires death to pride, self-importance, position, not self-deprecation, but self-awareness that everything I am is dependent on God alone. There is no good in doing justice or showing mercy for the sake of praise or to feel good. Now, it is good to go feed the hungry, go to the stew pigeon and serve if it makes you feel good. You do good by doing that, but there's no goodness for you if it's to make you feel better. We grow through, through service that's simply because it's the right thing to do. We grow through loving simply because that's who we are. Because it's the right thing to do. 
Goodness, trust God with all the heart and leaning not on our own understanding. That's a good proverb there, isn't it? Lean not on your own understanding. Trust the Lord with all your heart. That is another picture of holiness. All right, so tomorrow we will look at Matthew 1.1, as I mentioned, the God of love who is Messiah. If you have chance, I know you're busy and you're tired, read verse 1. But further, think about who he's talking about and think about their stories. Okay? That's where we're going tomorrow. All right? Think about the stories. All right? All right. Thank you so much. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you, God, for the, 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 the truth of your word that sometimes confronts us and makes us uncomfortable. And Lord, you confronted me this week again with lesson after lesson after lesson that I know is true that the things of this world come creeping in and the prejudices that I've learned through my life keep creeping in. And so Lord, I, I say with you as said in the Gospel of Luke, Lord, I will take up my cross daily and follow you. I will surrender my will daily and follow you. I will die to myself daily and follow you today. Lord, help us to be the holiness people that we say that we are. We're here at a holiness camp, and you have shown us. You have shown us, oh God, what is good. Help us to live it. Help us to be it. Help us to show it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you. Thank you.